This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Middle of chapter 2 And he was explaining Beginning at the bottom of page 59 he explains the saying of the rabbis, of the Talmudic rabbis, that the Torah commands a Jew to connect with Hashem. So the rabbis say, how can you connect with Hashem? He says, by connecting with a Talmud Chacham, with a Torah scholar. You connect with the Shekhinah, with Hashem. And he explained that's because the, the tzaddik, the genuine Torah scholar is like the brain of the Jewish people. And just like the child that derives from, originates from the brain of the father, which travels through the spine and ends up in the physical form of a sperm, and that activates the birthing process, and the uh, <coughs> child is rooted within the father, um, and yet that a sperm develops from the brain of the child, which is the closest to the original source because the brain of the child thinks like the, the child thinks like the father, etc. And then it further develops into the full full uh, full body, full being, 248 limbs, 365 veins, up until the hair and the toenail. And all of this is, is connected, is vital, and is alive, and is connected through its connection to the brain. Every part of the body is connected to the brain. The brain senses the whole body, the nerve system, everything is the command and control system of the body. So the body senses and everything is connected with the brain of the child, which is connected to the brain, of, to its original root and source, the brain of the father. And it still receives its vitality from its connection to the brain. He says, and this is the analogy to the Jewish people. The Jewish people are Klal Yisrael, the Jewish whole. We all originate from the same source. Every single Jew is rooted in the supernal wisdom. God and His wisdom is one, in God's essence. And as the, the source, the divine spark, travels, just like the sperm uh, is within the mother's womb, it develops as it travels through the different worlds that the Kabbalists talk about, the world of emanation and creation and formation and action. So therefore you end up with the different souls. You have souls that are the brain of the Jewish people, you have souls that are the mind, uh, the eyes of the Jewish people, and then you have souls that are the heart of the Jewish people, and then you have the hands and then the legs, and down to the toenail and the hair and toenail. But yet, nevertheless, they all come from the same root, they all come from the same source. And they receive their vitality and their energy from their connection to their source because even presently they are connected to the brain of the Jewish people, which is the Rebbe, 
the tzaddik, the leader of the, the, the Moshe Rabbeinu of every generation, and um, who senses the whole Kal Yisrael, and by being connected to, by each organ, each part of the organism being connected to the brain, to the Rebbe, thereby you're connected with the original source, you're connected to the divine. Because a Rebbe is one who lives and breathes godliness. His whole being is godly. There's no ego, there's no I. And when you're connected to the Rebbe, you're really connected to godliness. What is the Rebbe? The Rebbe, it's not about, God forbid, worshipping a human being. That's idolatry. The whole essence of a Rebbe is that the Rebbe is nothing. Because the moment the Rebbe becomes something, he's not a Rebbe. <laughs> he's not a tzaddik. What makes the Rebbe a Rebbe is there is no I. There is no ego. He's a conduit. He's transparent. He's translucent. He's a conduit to godliness. There is no ego. There is no I. He's connected. He senses the transcendent level of godliness. The infinite level of godliness, the, 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 the level of godliness that transcends the entire framework of being, of existence. So the Rebbe is a conduit for the Orient Self, for the infinite light, for the essence of God. The Rebbe is one with God. In the language of the Talmud, God th- spoke through the the Shekhinah, God's presence, was manifest and spoke through the throat of Moshe. It says the Ten Commandments, so first God spoke all Ten Commandments in one word, which is humanly impossible. So God spoke all Ten Commandments in one word. Then God started saying each commandment separately, individually. After he said the first commandment, the Jewish people, they died. They couldn't take it. It was too intense. So he resurrected them. He said the second commandment. They died again. He resurrected them. And then they pleaded with Moshe, please ask Hashem to stop. We can't take it. Moshe was upset. But God says, no, they spoke well. The last eight commandments, I will speak through your voice. It will be your voice, but it will be my voice coming through your voice. I will speak through you. You'll be my mouthpiece. But it's God's voice speaking through the throat of Moshe. Beautiful story, Rabbi Hillel Paracher. We discussed earlier, one of the greatest Chabad Hasidim. There was once a Hasidic discourse, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, Samuel Tzedek, gave a Hasidic discourse. And, um, you know, there was a whole discussion amongst the Hasidim, the elderly Hasidim, and even the children of the Samuel Tzedek, what the Samuel Tzedek meant in this discourse. And the, you know, Hasidim know when the Rebbe says a mimer, a Hasidic discourse, when the Rebbe used to say, he used to close his eyes. He was like in a different world. It was like a godly transmission. <laughs> it's like the Shekhinah, God's presence, was speaking through his voice. I mean, he, was, he used to hold on, under the table, he would hold on to a handkerchief, like hold on to this world. And he would sweat. You know, these powerful air conditions. He, he would be in a different world. After the Rebbe had the heart attack, and uh, had a massive heart attack, and miraculously he recovered. Uh, two months later, the doctors allowed him to come down and begin again the Hasidic Fabringens, the public gatherings. But they would monitor his heart. 
And the first time, the doctor was upstairs and they had a patient you know, on the heart that was monitoring. And suddenly he sees the machine goes like, I don't know the code for it, like blank. Like he runs down, you know, this is, what's going on? Everyone is standing, the synagogue is quiet, you can hear a pin drop. And the Rebbe was saying a Hasidic discourse. He used to sing a, a nigun before, a special song, and the Rebbe would close his eyes, everyone would stand up. And the Rebbe would say a Hasidic discourse, a very intense concentration, would say a Hasidic discourse. He thought maybe it's a mistake. He runs back up. No, the machine is like, uh, I don't know what's called, cold, cold blue or whatever. It's like a flat. flat. He runs back down, the Rebbe is sitting calmly and saying a Hasidic discourse. And so a few times he realized the Rebbe is saying Hasidic discourse is a different, a different dimension. He's, he's, and um, so it's like God is speaking through, through his throat. He's transmitting Torah, transmitting the secrets of the Torah, transmitting the secrets of the secrets, the Hasidic teachings. It's like Hashem is speaking through his throat. So they had a whole discussion amongst themselves what the Rebbe meant. It wasn't clear. And Rebbe was his opinion. He's one of the senior, the elderly Hasidim. And uh, the others had their own opinion. Then they said, why are we having a discussion? Let's ask the Rebbe. So they asked the Rebbe, and the Rebbe gave his opinion, interpreting what he said. And it was not like Ravila Parashas explanation. And Ravila Parashas did not take back his own opinion. He said, listen, because when the Rebbe is saying a Hasidic discourse, God is speaking through him. <laughs> After he says it, he has his opinion, and I understand his words differently. <laughs> And the Rebbe once quoted this. You know, that he had, he had a point. But nevertheless, the children of the Hasidim said, listen, someone who God speaks through him, you could probably <laughs> rely on his opinion. <laughs> Even when God is not speaking through him. You know, he's probably... Uh... <laughs> but his point is a point. So a tzaddik, by definition, is someone who's totally nullified. There is no ego. That's why you can come to him for advice. You come to him for advice. Because it's not. The Talmud says, if a person is ill, you should go to the tzaddik. Ask him, for, ask him to pray for you. Why go to the tzaddik? Pray to God directly. But the Talmud says, go to the tzaddik. Go to the Chacham Shabir, the wise man in the city, and ask him to pray for you. Why? Many explanations given. One of the explanations is that when a person, when it's decreed in heaven that a person should suffer or experience pain, the, the decree was for you, for that person. Once you share your pain with the tzaddik, because the tzaddik is selfless, and he really cares about you, he feels your pain. Your pain is his pain. Now he's suffering. <laughs> In heaven, they never decree that the tzaddik should suffer. You should suffer, not him. So they have no choice. They, have, they must remove your pain and suffering because they have to alleviate the pain of the tzaddik. So a tzaddik is selfless. It's not about him. What about I? There is no I. There is no ego. And the less ego there is, the greater the tzaddik. The holier the person. And the ultimate tzaddik, Moshe Rabbeinu, was the most humble person that lived. He was totally nullified. He says, I am nothing. What are we? We're nothing. Aaron and I, what are we? We're nothing. He was totally nullified. There was zero. There was absolutely no ego. There was no greater person. He was the greatest prophet that ever lived and will ever live. Someone who's completely nullified before God. Therefore, whatever Moshe did, it's not he did. God did. He lifted his hand and he split the sea. Moshe, a human being, can't split a sea. 
But Moshe, Hashem acted through Moshe. His stick was holy. Everything about him was holy. Because he was just a conduit for God. It's like electricity needs a conduit. So ego gets in the way. When there's ego, it gets in the way of godliness. It blocks. When there's less ego, then the energy just flows through. Godliness just flows through. The blessing just flows through. So people ask, Hasidim worship a Rebbe, Hasidim are a Rebbe. God forbid. If a Rebbe is something, then he's not a Rebbe. A Rebbe, the reason he's a Rebbe and he's a Tzaddik is because there is, no, there is nothing. The Tzaddik is, his whole being, his whole essence is permeated with the reality and the truth that there is no other reality but God. There is no I, there is no ego. All there is is God. There is nothing else. Everything is really God. Everything is God, and God is everything, and there's nothing else. There's nothing but God. The tzaddik experiences it, lives it, breathes it, feels it, is in awe of it, is excited by it, is motivated by it, aspires towards it. That's his whole being. That's his whole life. That's why he's a tzaddik. That's why he can bring blessings into this world. His whole being is a blessing. And he draws down godliness into this world and reveals godliness into this world and brings blessing to this world and success because he's representative of godliness. The less of ego, the closer you are to God. The less I, the closer you are to God, the more real you are. As the Zohar says, the Yud is the smallest letter of the, and yet it's the holiest letter. God's name is Yud. The less something is, the more valuable it is more precious it is. Bigger something is, no value. It has no currency. So it says in the, in the, the, says in the Talmud, the, upper, the world above is the opposite of this world. What's important here is nothing there. What's nothing here is important, is valuable there. It's a different marketplace. What's valuable in this world? Ego, egotism, loud, bulk, substance has no currency in heaven. Something, what's not value, what's not value in this world? When something is nothing, it's bittle, self-nullification, there's no ego, that's precious in heaven. Pesach is around the corner, there was a, I believe it was a lel of a rabbi, and he once prepared for making a Seder, and he prepared all the Kabbalistic intentions of a Seder, and he prepared and he studied, and he made a Seder. He never made such a Seder in his life. And he was so taken by his Seder. He was up all night, and the Seder was unbelievable. And he, the next day he took a nap. He was so wiped out by the whole experience, from his whole high, that he was wiped out. And he took a nap at the end of the day. And he slept almost till midnight. <laughs> he woke up. The second Seder is almost midnight. You can imagine how he felt. He felt like a bum, a low life. Everyone is sitting at the Seder and he's sleeping and he slept through, the, almost slept through the whole Seder. And he had a custom to finish the second night also before midnight. So he had to do the whole Seder rushed. He barely could say the words, no intent, no nothing. And anyway, he was home. The last days of Pesach, he went to visit his Rebbe, who was the Chayza of Lublin, the seer of Lublin. So he walks into the room to the Rebbe says, well, let's take a look. You made two seders. First seder, he says, eh, he's flying in heaven, 
Kabbalah. What does he know about Kabbalah? What is he flying in heaven? He's taken by himself. That Seder is worthless. Second Seder. Ah, oh, that's a Seder. He was broken. He felt miserable. He felt worthless. He felt he's... Oh, that was so precious in heaven. Such a Seder. That's... So it's a different value system. When we're taken by ourselves and we, we, we think we're flying in heaven and we already grab God by, you know, with our fingers. Or the person is brokenhearted and the person feels nothing and the person feels insignificant. Then that brings you closer to Hashem. So a tzaddik, by definition, is one who has no ego. His whole being is egoless. The greater the tzaddik, the less ego, the more egoless. The Rebbe, who senses the whole, senses the whole of the Jewish people, Chal Yisrael. Not the individual, but as how each one is part of something larger than the whole is greater than, than the sum total of its parts, and we're all interrelated and interconnected. So the Rebbe, there is no ego. It's not about I, it's not about... It's all about Hashem. And therefore... The Talmud says, how do you connect with God? The person says, I can connect with God directly. The Talmud says, no. You want to connect with God? There's only one way you connect with God. You must connect to God by being connected to the tzaddik, by being connected to the Rebbe. And by listening. And just like the foot feels connected to its head, and it obeys the head, and it feels connected to the head, the head wants to move automatically, the foot moves. Doesn't have to command it, doesn't have to force it. Automatically, the foot senses what the head wants. So too, we have to be connected to the tzaddik, connected to the Rebbe. And, and by connecting to the tzaddik, connecting to the Rebbe, we are connected to our source, our, the source of our soul, which is the supernal wisdom. That's what nourishes us, that's what gives us the godly nourishment and nurturing, that keeps us alive and vibrant, and it keeps us connected with our godly spark. Otherwise, we become very egotistical, very arrogant, and delusional. And we get in the way of our godly essence. If we're opposed to the Rebbe, if we recall the misnagdim, the opposite, the opposition, how ironic, by divine providence, the establishment in the times of the Baal Shem Tov and the Rabbi Dover and the Alter Rebbe, they call themselves, they name themselves mitnagdim, the opposition. It doesn't make sense. They were the establishment. The Hasidim were like the opposition party, the new kid on the block. But knowingly, subconsciously, if they didn't realize it, their mazel realized it. The neshama realized that Hasidism, this is, this is emes, this is reality. They named themselves Mishnagdim, we're the, we're the opposition. Someone who opposes the Rebbe, opposes the Baal Shem Tov, opposes the Rebbe, opposes the Moshe Rabbeinu of our generation, and says, I don't need a tzaddik, I don't need a rebbe. I'll just study Torah, and I'll just do mitzvot, and I'll just connect with God directly. Why do I need a tzaddik? If someone is ill, the Talmud says, run to the chacham. Ask the chacham to pray for you. The Talmud says, you want to connect with God, you must connect through the Talmud chacham. That's the only way you can connect with God. Just like the only way for the toenail and the ear to be connected is by connecting to the brain of the entire organism which is connected, consciously connected to its source, the brain of the Father. And that's how it receives nourishment and vitality. So too for each and every Jew, each and every part of Klal Yisrael, each and every 
individual Jew and part of the Jewish people to really feel connected to its source of the supernal wisdom, the divine essence, the divine godly spark within us, to activate that and to connect with it and to be in touch with it, you must have a conscious connection to the tzaddik. Now, the question is, what if you don't have a connection to the tzaddik? What if you're in opposition to the tzaddik? You're a mitlaget. You, you call yourself the opposition. I'm opposed to the tzaddik. And how do I connect with God? And that's what he's going to address in the middle of page 60. Let's just, let's just repeat quickly. In the bottom of page 59. This explains the comment of our sages on the verse and cleave unto him concerning which the question arises. How can mortal man cleave to God in answer our sages' comment? He who cleaves unto a Torah scholar is deemed by the Torah to have actually become attached to the Shekinah, divine presence. This seems difficult to comprehend. How can one equate cleaving to a Torah scholar with cleaving to the Shashinah? However, in light of the above, this is readily understood. For through attachment to the scholars, the Nefesh, Ruach, and the Shama of the ignorant are bound up and united with their original essence and their root in supernal wisdom, and thereby with God himself. Since he and his wisdom are one, he is the knowledge. As for those who willfully sin and rebel against the Torah sages, how do they receive their spiritual nurture and life? Spiritual life and nurture flow only where there is a desire to nurture and give life. In answer to this, the text continues. The nurture of their nefesh, ruach, and neshama comes from the hind part, as it were, of the nefesh, ruach, and neshama of the scholars. Nurture from the hind part can be understood by way of comparison to one who gives an object to his enemy, obviously not out of a true desire to give, but rather due to something, some external factor. The grudging reluctance with which he gives will be reflected in his manner. He will turn away from him, tossing the object to his enemy over his shoulder. The same is true in the spiritual sphere. When the spiritual nurture, nurture is given unwillingly, it is described as coming from the hind part of the giver, an external level of nurture. Nevertheless, even those who rebel against the sages receive some measure of spiritual nourishment from them. For every soul, without exception, must be bound up with its roots and source. As explained earlier, the level of nurture they receive is, however is from the hind part of the souls of the sages. Okay, when you give some, someone willingly, you smile, you look them in the eye, you face them. If you're forced to give, someone that you hate, you don't want to give, but you just have to give. Um, you don't do it willingly. So that's like throwing something, you, you give it to them, but you turn your back to them. You don't want to look at them. I have no choice. I give it to you, but without any joy, without any pleasure. There are things in life that a person does that give you pleasure. And there are many things in life that we do, we have to do it, not because it gives us any pleasure. 
We do it externally. We do it because for something else. Like most people going to work is not necessarily a pleasure. They go to work because they want to make money. The only way to make money is by working. So their pleasure is what they do with their money. That's their pleasure. But the work itself is something you have to do in order to be able to do what I want to do. This is something I must do. Not that I enjoy this. If there was no money involved, I wouldn't be doing it. I'm doing it because I have to do it. So that's external. So when God gives someone holiness, God gives with a smile, willingly. When a Jew earns, earns his rewards, a Jew earns and lives a Jewish life, and God gives willingly and he gives with a smile and also with a cheshvan but when God gives material abundance to those who don't deserve it to those who anger him to those who hate him because anyone who hates a Jew also hates God so when God gives those who don't deserve and he gives them material abundance he's giving them material abundance but he's like throwing it to them it's not lovingly and it's not even for their own good ultimately it's not for their good it's not given with love with care you deserve it you don't deserve it it's going to destroy you just take it so that's like when you throw behind your back you hate it you hate someone or you hate them or you hate doing it but you have to do it for whatever reason. So you do it. So this is the analogy he's saying every Jewish soul must receive its nourishment from the Talmud Chacham, from the Tzaddik, from the Rebbe. But those who have a connection to the Rebbe and those who respect the Rebbe and those who love the Rebbe and those who are students of the Rebbe and those who listen to his guidance and his directives like every healthy organ listens to the guidance and the directives of its own brain, its own mind then the brain and the mind in turn um, nourish and sustain it in in, in an internal way in an open way with a smile but when a person, when a Jew turns his back to the Rebbe and is opposed to the Tzadah and rebels against the Tzadah and is disrespectful of the Tzad. So, you turn your back, so you receive from the tzaddik also from his back. It's measure for measure. The heart of a person is like a mirror. If you love someone, the other one will love you in return. If you return, turn your back towards someone, that's the greatest distance you can have between two people. It's not physical distance. You can have someone you love unconditionally or your best friend could be in Australia on the other end of the world. There's no distance. Love transcends time and space. You feel close, you feel intimate, you feel connected, you're in touch, you're in tune with each other. Physical space doesn't create any barrier, any distance between people. You can have two people in the same room and it's so distant. It's like from here to here to here to to the moon. It's ice. It's cold. They hate each other. They turn their back towards each other. That's as distance as you can get. Can't stand each other. 
then you can be physically close, proximity. But you're just, that's turning you back. Like Hashem says, how can you be distant from Hashem? Hashem is everywhere. So distance means when you don't care. Your heart is not into it. He says, you're turning to me. If Hashem complains with the prophet, you turn to me, but you're turning your back to me. If you're turning to me, but you're doing it coldly, mechanically, your heart is not into it. So you, you don't care. You're turning your back to me. You're turning your back to me, your heart is not into it. So measure for measure. Hashem turns his back to you. That's, that's, that's how you become distant from God. You, consciously, you don't feel warm, you don't feel connected, you don't feel any closeness, any intimacy. You turn your back, you're just going through the motions. You're doing what you have to, you're just going through the motions. Even if you're doing what you have to do, you're turning to me. God says, you're turning to me, but it's with your back. You're going through the motions. And therefore, if you turn your face to Hashem, Hashem turns His face to you. You turn your back, Hashem turns His back. And then you have to do Teshuvah, you have to come back together, you have to reunite, you have to join your faces together, face to face. So too, you can face the tzaddik, and the tzaddik faces you. And it's a love relationship, spirituality. They can do it for, for spirituality is love. When there's love, there's no ego. Love is not based on ego. You know, in America, it became very easy to love. Thousands of years, we've been struggling to, to achieve genuine love. It became so easy today. Today, we love everything. But love is like, I love ice cream. It doesn't mean anything. That's not love. Genuine love is soul, is spiritual, is selfless. And so when there's the love is the conduit for spiritual connection. When there's love, then it's face to face. You face each other, you look each other in the eye, you feel close together, you feel connected, you strengthen each other, and you grow together. So, and that's, that's the spiritual conduit for all spiritual energy. So when a Jew loves God, you turn your face to God. You're not just doing it because you have to, you feel forced, you feel nebuch. Like a burden, you do it out of love, then God turns his face to you and he smiles. So when a, when a Jew has a loving relationship with the Talmud Chacham, with a Rebbe, with a Tzaddik, and he feels connected, then the Tzaddik turns to him, his soul turns to you, it's face to face. And, and the, the energy and the connection is very clear. But when you become egotistical, why, does someone, why is someone opposed to the tzaddik? How could someone be opposed to the tzaddik? The tzaddik is pure. The tzaddik is a saint. The tzaddik is selfless. How could someone be opposed to the tzaddik? Who is opposed to the tzaddik? Only the egotist. Religion could be the ultimate ego trip. A person who, is, who the whole Torah that he learns is just to aggrandize himself. As the Talmud says, it's Torah Shalei Lishma, when a person learns Torah for all the wrong reasons. And it becomes an ego trip to sharpen his mind and to show the community how brilliant he is and to get a share in the world to come. This is all ego. Only a person who's egotistical is jealous of the tzaddik, hates the tzaddik, resents the tzaddik, can't stand the tzaddik. So the more the ego, then that, that obstructs the godly energy. And therefore, the energy is not clear. It doesn't come through. It's like it has to be like, like throwing it behind your back. You turned your back. 
You've obstructed the energy. You're getting in the way. Because the way to connect with God is by the less ego we have. The more we get out of our own ego, the more we can connect with God. So when a person is nullified to the Rebbe, when you nullify to someone greater than you, that's our way of getting out of our own egos, getting out of the way, and allowing the godly energy to enter into our neshama, to ignite that spark, so we can tap into that, that core and essence of godliness located at the center of our being. But the more egotistical we are, and we don't have that quality of humility of self-nullification, and the more you think, I don't need a Rebbe, I don't need a Tzaddik, I don't need, I'm, I'm my own guiding light. My mind is smart enough, I can figure it out myself. Then you're just getting in the way. And you're not allowing the godliness to vitalize you and to rejuvenate you. And so you have that connection with the Tzaddik. Every Jew has a connection with the Tzaddik. But it's like throwing it behind your back without love, without feeling. And um, you turn your back and the energy turns its back. As it says in the Talmud, it says if you stop learning one day, you stop learning Torah for one day, the Torah will abandon you two days. You abandon me, the Torah says, I'll abandon you two days. Because it's a relationship. In a relationship, relationship is not neutral. Relationship is, is, is warm, is intimate. If you feel close, the other person feels close, draws to you. If you draw away and you're cold, the other person runs away twice as fast. So our relationship to Torah, it's a relationship. So if Torah is precious to you, and you realize that Torah is godly and divine, and you're eager, and you're hungry, and you can't get enough, and you try your best, and the Torah draws itself closer to you. But if you're indifferent to Torah, you abandon it. It's not precious. You let a day go by without learning Torah, and the Torah says, okay. It's, it's just the nature of the relationship. You're cold to me, the Torah just runs away. Not the Torah is getting even. It's just that's the nature of a relationship. It's a real thing. It's a real intimate relationship. So if you're close... It's a two-way street. But if, if you're cold, it's also a two-way street. Then the Torah runs away twice as fast. The same is with the tzaddik. It's not the tzaddik is getting back. It's not about ego. It's just the nature, the genuine nature of, of spirituality, of a relationship. A healthy organ is connected to its source. There's no ego. And then there's a clear connection in the two-way street. When the organ becomes egotistical and the organ senses itself, when you feel yourself, that's the first sign of illness. A healthy person doesn't feel his organ. But when an organ becomes, you become conscious of your organ, that means the organ is ill. The organ is sick. There's some, some, some disconnect between the organ and its source. So the organ is alive, it's connected, but it's sick. It's receiving its life from, 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 from like throwing it behind your back. Not face-to-face. It's not a clear flow of energy. It's obstructed. The ego gets in the way. And therefore becomes a sick organ, a sick part of the organism. 
It's connected, it's alive, but it's sick. So yes, it's receiving its life from the tzaddik. It must receive a life from the tzaddik because it's part of the Jewish organism. And it's connected to the brain, whether it likes it or not, whether it wants to or not, it is. And the more opposed it is, it doesn't make any difference. But it's a sick organism. It's not getting it a straight, clear flow of energy. It's getting it like you're throwing it behind your back, so on your hate. It's a two-way street. You turn your back to the tzaddik, so the soul of the tzaddik turns its back to you. Not, not out of revenge I'm getting back to you, just because that's just the nature of a genuine relationship. It cannot flourish. It needs a conduit. It cannot flourish in an environment where there's no love, there's no appreciation, there's no connection. In an egotistical environment, love cannot flourish. And obviously the person who's opposed to the tzaddik, it all comes from ego. 100%. Because deep down the neshama, as the Rebbe once said, today there is no misnagin. There's no genuine misnagin there. Because deep down, the neshama knows of every single Jew is godly, and that is its true reality. It's just a cover-up. Cover-up we have this ego and the ego gets in the way and therefore we become this petty jealousy and, and um, that just blocks the flow of godliness and doesn't allow the, the godly energy to flourish, doesn't allow the godly energy to emerge and surface and therefore you cannot receive the life force like a face-to-face <coughs> transmission. It can only come about indirectly by throwing it behind the back and just getting a little. So that's the tragedy of the snagat, of the opponent. Rabbi, how do we connect to the tzaddik, I guess, today? or Not specifically because, I guess, the rabbi is not physically here anymore, but even before that, I mean, what is the way to connect to the tzaddik? That question was asked by the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. Uh, someone was asked, too, from the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he said, the way to connect with me is not just by looking at a picture, but the way to connect is by studying my teachings, studying the, the Hasidic teachings of the Rebbe, listening to the guidelines of the Rebbe, because the Rebbe tells us what defines for us what the unique mission of our generation is. Every generation has their unique mission. So the brain, who senses the whole, who's connected to the source, tells us what our main mission, what our generation, what our unique challenge, what our unique mission is um, as Jews, in our day and age, dealing with the realities of our day and age, and listening to my directives and guidelines, um, participating in the gatherings, in the studying, and the, the different Hasidic gatherings. And um, that's how you connect to the Rebbe, by studying this Torah, listening to his directives, and... Um, his programs. Right. And by participating in... in what he wants done. Right. Participating in, 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 in his... In his directives and his teachings and his guidance, and that's how you connect. That's an internal connection. It's a soul connection. It's not an external connection. It's one soul responds to another soul. So when your soul is connected to the soul of the Rebbe, 
by learning the Torah that the Rebbe teaches. And, and through the songs that the Rebbe taught and by listening to the, the guidelines, the teachings, and uh, fulfilling the mission that the Rebbe gave us of sp- spreading Judaism and spreading uh, the Torah. And um, that's how we connect. It, you know, it's, it says the tzaddik is compared to his creator. Just like how do we connect with God? We connect by God, through God, by doing his will, doing his mitzvot, and studying his Torah. So too, when a Rebbe gives a guideline and a Rebbe gives an instruction, you know, the Chassid believes that the Rebbe, it's not his guideline. Again, it's not about the... The Rebbe is telling you what God wants from us. Because being... The Rebbe is the brain of the Jewish people and he's the closest to God and he senses and he's the least egotistical and he's the most nullified Jew and he's the holiest Jew amongst all the Jewish people. And therefore he's so in tune with God and he's so in tune with Godliness that he's able to tell us what, how God wants us, what God needs us to do at this moment in time in Jewish history. So by you, when you follow the directives of the Rebbe, you're not following the directives of a human being. You basically, you, his, what he's directed is, he's telling you what Hashem wants. So if you truly want to connect with God, you truly want to be in tune with God, you truly want to connect with God, you have to follow the instructions of the Rebbe. You know, God gave us 613 mitzvot. But every generation has their unique mission how they have to, what they have to accomplish, what God needs from them and wants from them at that time and point in, Jew, in history, in Jewish history. How to express the Torah mitzvot in today's day and age. Without affecting the Torah mitzvot, without compromising on Torah mitzvot, what's the, how, how we have to, what we have to accomplish and what has to be the theme. As the Talmud says, Every person has one mitzvah that they're very careful in. So to every generation has one mitzvah, 630 mitzvah, that they have to know that this is their challenge and this is their goal and this is what they have to accomplish. They have to accomplish this. So the Rebbe, who's in tune with Hashem, who's so nullified before Hashem, that he's totally in tune with God, so when the Rebbe gives a directive, it's not a, a, a human being giving a directive, a personal directive. What the Rebbe is telling us is that this is basically the will of Hashem. And when you listen to the Rebbe, then basically you're listening to the will of Hashem. That's what the Talmud says. You want to connect with God, you have to connect to the Rebbe. This is what we call a munat chachamim, the faith in, in the why in the chachamim, the Torah scholars, the genuine scholars of the Jewish people, holy people. It's a beautiful story with the author of the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe. Alter Rebbe was a student then of Rabbi Dovber, the Magad of Mizrich. And he was traveling with some other students, and they stopped in an inn. Most of the innkeepers in Eastern Europe were Jews. That was the, one of the only uh, ways of earning a living. They would run the inns, they would sell the vodka, 
run the taverns, and they made a living, barely. And uh, this innkeeper has been there for many decades, and uh, Alter Rebbe looks at him and speaks to him, and he says, he says, how many years have you been there? He says, 30 years, 40 years. He says, what? 30, 40 years? And you haven't been in Shul Shabbos? Because there was no minion. He was the only Jew in town. He used to do it, like here in America. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur was the only time of year. They closed the taverns, and everyone went into town to be in, the, to be in, in Shul. But the rest of the year, there was no Shul. He says, what? You're living in a place, in the boondocks? No minion, no fellow Jews. How could you do this? The Jew says, but I understand, I, I, I make a beautiful living here the last 40 years. What do, what do you want me to do? I mean, how am I going to make a living in the city? There's so many Jews struggling to make a living. What am I going to do in the city? What the Rebbe says, God is big. The same God that figured out how to give you a living here will figure out to make you a nice living even in town. Anyway, Dr. Rebbe went on to do his own thing, his learning and this. A few hours later, he looks outside and he sees wagons all piled up. <laughs> so he's looking, I think, he says, what's going on? He says, what do you mean what's going on? You told me that I can't live here anymore. And Alter Rebbe was so taken aback because he wasn't even a Rebbe. He was the youngest student of the Maggid of Mizrish of Ber. But this simple Jew who never went to Minyan in 30, 40 years. But he had such emunas chachamim, such simple faith in the words of the Tzadik, that without any question, because Alter Rebbe wasn't, there was no ego here, Alter Rebbe wasn't just telling him, just to make a point, to showing how smart he was, Alter Rebbe was speaking from his neshamba, he was saying the truth, and his truth resonated with the Jew, and the Jew responded, and miraculously, the end of the story, as soon as he moved out, he took all the stuff, a fire hit the place. He would have re- had he remained. He would have lost every penny he had. But here he went willingly, and Hashem helped him. Now the Rebbe told the story himself. He told this story himself to his grandson, the Tzemach Tzedek Rabbi Nachman. When he got married, his father-in-law gave him a nice, we call it a nadin, a nice. Uh, you get married, you give the son-in-law a nice piece of change so you can invest and you can earn a living so you can sit and study in peace. When he received the money, Dr. Rebbe called him and he said, uh, he opened up his drawer. There was a drawer where he kept all his tzedakah, money that he collected for charity. He says, I'll give you good advice. He says, why don't you put all that money in this drawer? He says, no, this is his nothing. This is, you know, he has money now to last him a lifetime. He can invest it. He can be able to sit and learn. <laughs> Give it all to Zedakah. He gave 10%, this 20%. I'm sure he gave even more. He's suggesting he should put all that money in Zedakah. Okay, that was it. Anyway, anyway, he gave his money to a chassid who was a businessman to invest. You know, the way markets are. Yiddish of Basel... <laughs> He lost all his investment. <laughs> a few months later, Al Tarabi asks his news, how are your investments? <laughs> he told him the truth. So Al Tarabi looked at him and said, Let me tell you a story. He says, Here I was a simple Jew. I wasn't even the Rebbe yet. 
I was the youngest of the students. But when he heard that I am a student of Rabbi Dovber, the great tzaddik, the great maggot of Mizrich, and I said something like that, without even thinking, I drew his 40 years in the, as an inn, successful, established, made a beautiful living, an older Jew, without any hesitation. He packed up his bags and he's moving. Because it's not I told him, this is the will of Hashem. If this is the will of Hashem, I'm a Jew, I have to listen. And I asked you, and I pleaded with you, put it in here, and you know who I am. So that's the idea when you listen to a tzaddik. A tzaddik has no ego here. When a tzaddik tells you something, a tzaddik gives you a directive, or gives you instructions, or asks us to do something, it's the will of Hashem. When a tzaddik, his Torah that he's teaching, Hashem is speaking through his voice, through his throat. It's like Moshadabbeinu, transmitting Torah. The Torah that Rabbi Akiva taught in his academy, we're still learning today. It's holy, it's divine. Hashem is speaking through them. So when you're connected to the Torah of a tzaddik and you're connected to the directors of a tzaddik, you're connected to Hashem. That's how you connect. It's a real connection. It's a relationship. There's an openness. There's a love. There's, a, there's an obeying. There's a connection. There's, there's no ego. Who can evoke that within you? The sense of no ego? Only someone who himself has no ego. There was once two brothers, two rabbis in Eastern Europe. One was a great Hasidic rabbi, and he had a huge following. And the other was a rabbi, brilliant Torah scholar. He had a very little, very small following. The brothers once met, and the older brother asked the younger one, he says, listen, between you and I, we both know that I'm much brighter than you, I'm much smarter than you, I'm more brilliant than you are. Why do I have such a small following? Says you, you know, and yet they have such a great following. So the younger brother looks at him and he says, "You know, you're right. You are more brilliant than I am, and I have the same question that you have. I, every day I ask myself the same thing. But maybe that's the reason. <laughs> you're asking why people are, are not coming to me, so everyone runs away. He says, I'm asking why are people coming to me? That's why they come. Who can evoke a sense of connection, a sense of egolessness?" A sense to nullify yourself and to listen and to obey and to be connected to something greater than yourself. Only someone who himself is connected. A Rebbe whose whole being is being nullified before God. There's no ego. He can evoke within the Hasidim, he can evoke within the Jewish people that sense of nullification, that sense of self-nullification. There is no ego, there is no I. Which really brings us to the concept of a Jewish king. The concept of a Jewish king, it's not like, it's not a political office per se concept of a Jewish king is to evoke within the Jewish people the sense, the sense God's royalty. The sense of nullifying yourself before the king. Because the king is nullified before God. As expressed in Jewish law, it says when the king bows down, he doesn't lift his head, the whole Shemoneser. We only bow down at the beginning and at the end of a few blessings. The high priest bows down at the beginning and at the end of every blessing. The king, once he bows down, he remains bowed down the whole Shemoneser. Because a king is totally nullified before God. That's what makes him king. That's what makes him the, the real life, the human being, the flesh and blood expression of God's royalty. Because he's totally nullified before God. And he can evoke within the subjects this nullification of the subjects to the king. So by the subjects being nullified before the king, the Jewish king, the Jewish people are nullified before God and they're connected to God. That is a Rebbe. 
the king, the heart of the Jewish people, the brain of the Jewish people. When the Jewish people are nullified before the Rebbe, when the Jewish people were nullified before Moses, and Moshe was nullified before God, so Moshe was the most humble person that lived, who was the most nullified human being before God. He evoked within the Jewish people this sense of nullification, of self-nullification. That ability to rise beyond our egos and to be connected to something greater than ourselves. So the way to connect to the Rebbe, by being connected to the Rebbe, you're connected to God. So it's an internal connection. It's a soul connection. It's a loving connection. It's a relationship. Okay, now we come to the end of the chapter. And the Rebbe brings, re-emphasizes, reinforces the point that he's been making till now. And brings it out in even a much more powerful way. The point that he's making is that each and every Jew, no matter who they are, has a Jewish soul. What is a Jewish soul? A Jewish soul is literally a piece of God's essence. And it's something that we receive the moment we're born. There are no human fingerprints in it. And that is the source of our being. That is the source of our identity. Where does a Jew get his esteem from? Not self-esteem. Self-esteem comes from ego. Something external. Something acquired. I'm self-esteem because I have this quality. Because... I've acquired wealth or position or strength or all of these things are, could be easily removed. This is not a true foundation to build your life on. It's a false prop. Where does a Jew's esteem come from? The fact that I have something inside of me that's divine. Not human, not acquired something that's purely divine. I no human fingerprints. And therefore it's unshakable. No one could remove it from me. No one could take it away from me. I can lose my money. The Jewish people lost everything. We lost our money, we lost our land, we lost our lives, we lost everything. But did we for one moment, were we shaken to our core? Did we forget our core, our essence, who we are, what we are? Did we lose our pride? Did we lose our sense of self? No. No one could rob that from in the ghetto, in the concentration camp. No one could rob our essence, our dignity. The Jews went singing into the gas chambers. No one could take away the spirit. No one could rob the spirit. In the ghettos, oppressed, no one could rob the true spirit because our identity is unshakable. It's nothing external. All the nations of the world could be conspiring against us. It doesn't, it doesn't shake us to the core. Our identity comes because we're Jewish. We have a divine spark. That's the foundation. Everything else flows from that point. As we say in the morning, we thank God that we're Jewish. The great master, the Rabbi Levi Yitzhak once when he's saying the early morning blessings and he's thanking God that he's Jewish, started dancing. He says, why are you dancing? He says, I woke up and I felt miserable. He says, I have no qualities and uh, I'm worthless and uh, I'm totally unhappy with myself. And, but then I said the blessing and I remembered that I was a Jew. That's it. He was happy. He was joyful. He was dancing. I have something so precious. It's not something man-made. It's not something that I have acquired. It's a gift. An inheritance. 
I am a Jew, my mother is a Jewish, my inheritance is a Jewish soul. I have a piece of the divine essence. And that comes directly from God. The moment you're born, that comes directly from God. So no one can take that away from you. Even we can't take it away from ourselves. We can't destroy that place. Even if we're a self-hating Jew and we've transgressed all 613 mitzvahs. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. We cannot destroy that holy spark. It remains intact, whole, perfect. Just like we cannot destroy God, we cannot affect God. We cannot affect that place. And now he's going to conclude that even our parents cannot affect that place. Although no one has an impact on children like parents do. No one has an impact on us like our own parents. That's reflected in Jewish law at the end of life. For parents, you say Kaddish. You sit in mourning. You mourn an entire year. No one else do you mourn for an entire year. Not for a spouse, not for children, God forbid. You mourn 30 days. But for parents, you mourn an entire year. Because parents are our foundation. Everything else is interchangeable. You can never replace your parents. It's the foundation. When a parent passes away, it's a crack in the foundation. Everything falls apart. It's not a detail. It's your whole foundation has been destroyed, taken, taken away, pulled from under you. Sometimes you don't appreciate it, you don't realize it until it's taken away. That's why it's so painful. And it lasts a year. It's raw for an entire year because it's so fundamental to a person. When we grow up, children, children, parents are God. That's why there's nothing in the world, there's nothing worse than child abuse. Can you imagine parents? Parents are God to the children. For parents to abuse their children to the child, this is their personal holocaust. It's like an emotional holocaust. Children can never blame themselves. Parents are God. Parents can do nothing wrong. To the child, there's only one conclusion. I must be terrible. It's my fault. I must be a horrible, terrible person. Can you imagine the scars that are left from all the abuses in the world? Spouse abuse and other abuses. There's nothing in the world that can come close to child abuse. The scar that that leaves on the child forever when a parent abuses a child, the child is destroyed. They feel totally worthless. They blame themselves and they internalize it. I am rotten to the core. My God punished me or abused me. Dr. Rebbe says that only up to a point. The damage that parents can do is only up to a point. Ultimately, it's only external superficial because even the effect that parents have on a child is also superficial the foundation the core of our being the center of our being we get directly from God without any intervention even the parents without even the fingerprints of the parents our soul comes directly from God directly between us and God no one could touch that place not ourselves and not even our parents So ultimately, we have a safe haven, a safe place deep down inside of us. 
that nobody could touch. It's inviolable. No one could touch, no one could harm, no one could even scratch the surface. It's perfect, it's intact, it's whole. And we have to remember that. Even, God forbid, a child who was abused, with the help of the Tanya, the help of Yiddishkeit, the help of Torah, you're able to tap into that essence. Remember who you are. You're a piece of the divine essence. And no one could touch that place. No one could harm that place. No one could take that away from you. And that's the foundation of your being, of your esteem. Not from anything external that's so shaky. Because it could be easily abused or easily taken away. And he says the effect that parents have on the children is only external, superficial. He, he's going to bring down from the Zohar that it's like the clothes of the neshama, the way the neshama expresses itself. As he says, the proof is that sometimes we have very holy parents and the children are mediocre, nothing special. Obviously, the children are refined because they grew up in such a holy home. They came into this world in such a holy union. The parents, holy people, thinking holy thoughts and love and so the soul comes into this world so the soul has an easy journey into this world a smooth ride into this world because it came into, and entered into a holy environment so the soul doesn't feel so jarred from its juxtaposition from heaven and suddenly the soul ends up in a coarse environment so it's a warm environment it's a loving environment the soul feels at home but the soul could be a very mediocre soul a low-level soul. On the other hand, many times we find that the children of the wicked parents, parents with no refinement, coarse, but the children have very deep souls, intense, powerful, profound souls. But because they grew up in a coarse environment, and because they were conceived in a coarse way, therefore the manner and the expression of the soul could be coarse. But the, the soul itself could be great. Obviously, the soul had nothing to do with the parents. Because these parents weren't holy and they were far from holiness in the moment of conception. They weren't thinking about holiness. How did they draw down such a holy soul? It has nothing to do with the parents. There's no human fingerprints on the soul. The story of the soul, the journey of the soul, there's no human fingerprints. It's directly from God. But it's all because of, and that's why God made that children should be born out of sexual intimacy. Because something so loving, something so intimate, something so deep, something so profound, um, that's the best vehicle for the soul to come into this world. But therefore everything depends on the moment of conception. What the parents were thinking at the moment of conception. Because everything is affected by that moment. And the soul enters into this world. The parents were holy and were thinking holy thoughts refined, uplifted, then the soul that comes into this world, the soul comes down with a very refined um, envelope, clothes, mannerisms, expressions. Whereas the soul has the vehicle, the vessel to express itself. A very refined vehicle. If the manner in which the soul came into this world, the moment of conception was coarse, and to the parents it was just a drunken experience, then the soul comes into this world and it's very coarse. The vehicle 
the clothes or the expression of the soul, the soul is limited by its expression. So although the soul may be a very high soul, a very deep soul, a very profound soul, it's much greater than the parents. But the expression of the soul will suffer because of, of, of the behavior of the parents. So the parents have a tremendous responsibility. Everything really depends on the moment of conception. Just like physically, it says what you think at the time, what you see at the time. You know, it will affect the child. Um, so to spiritually, what you're thinking at that moment will affect the child. Let's learn inside. Having concluded that every Jew has a holy soul, which emanates from above, from supernal wisdom, the Alter Rebbe now states that even the quality, the rank or level of each individual soul is determined only by factors from above. Spiritual factors such as the soul's above-mentioned descent, no actions of this physical world can determine its quality and rank. The Alpha Rebbe makes this statement indirectly by clarifying a quotation from the Zohar, which seems to indicate the contrary. As for what is written in the Zohar, and in Zohar Chadash, that the essential factor is to conduct oneself in a holy manner during sexual union, which is not the case with the children of the ignorant and their ilk, who do not conduct themselves thus. The ignorant, as the Zohar goes on to imply, draw down for their child a soul of a lower level, which seems to indicate that an action occurring in this physical world can in fact affect the soul's level. Not so, declares the Alter Rebbe. The Zohar is not referring to the soul at all, but to the soul's spiritual garment, as follows. This is because no nefesh, ruach, and neshama is without a garment which stems from the nefesh of its father's and mother's essence. All the commandments that it fulfills are influenced by that garment. It is through this garment that the soul achieves its ability to affect the body and to perform the commandments involving physical matters. Even the benevolence that flows to one from heaven is all given through that garment. Because the soul is so strongly bound up with this garment, the Zohar refers to the garment in this context as the person's soul. Now, if the person sanctifies himself, he will bring forth a holy garment for the neshama of his child, thereby enabling the child to serve Hashem more readily. However great a soul it may be, it still needs the father's sanctification at the time of intercourse. But the soul itself, as distinct from its garment, is not affected by the parent's sanctification. In fact, it sometimes happens that the soul of an infinitely lofty person comes to be the son of an ignoble and lowly person. All this has been explained by Rabbi Isaac Luria of Blessed Memory in Lakute Torah on Parshat Vayera and in Ta'ame Hamitzvot on Parshat Bereshi. Thus the physical world of which the parents are a part can in no way affect the soul's spiritual rank. Even the statement of the Zohar that the essential factor regarding the state of the soul is the holy manner of conduct during sexual union pertains only to the soul's garment. The soul itself, with all its various levels, emanates from above. So sometimes, like, sometimes you have a child who's very wild, but that child is filled full with potential. That child has a depth. That child has an interesting uh, soul, interesting mind. If only you can reach that child, you know you have great potential. Sometimes you can have a very obedient child, but it's, it's, it's mediocre. There's nothing, there's nothing special there. So you can't judge a book by its cover. You can have a child who's very nice and very refined, 
but there's no great energy in that soul. And then you have a child who's turbulent and grew up in a much, with a much rougher background, but there's, there's depth, there's genuineness, there's depth, there's potential, there's raw material, there's something to work with. So the soul itself, the soul itself, you can have a soul of parents who are totally unworthy, but the soul is of such great height, of such great depth. But the soul suffers because it was conceived and came into this world in a very coarse way. While the mediocre soul from the righteous parents um, gets, has the benefit that at least it's able to express itself and is more in tune and more sensitive to spirituality because of the environment of, at the moment of conception. The, uh, everything depends on the moment of conception. says the Roman nobleman when they captured, when they sacked Jerusalem and took thousands of Jews into captivity, it says they used to take the beautiful uh, boys and girls, Jewish boys and girls, and when they were intimate, they would like, keep them in the other room and they can look at them at the moment of, of intimacy because they wanted their children to be as beautiful. Because what happens at the moment of intimacy, at the moment of conception could physically affect the child as well. You know, what you're thinking at that moment, or what you're seeing at that moment, or what you're experiencing at that moment. And um, everything depends on that moment. Rabbi Yaakov Emden, great 17th century rabbi, makes a revolutionary statement. He says, where do the soul of converts come from? And vice versa. How is it possible for a Jew to convert? Christianity to another religion. And he says it all depends on the moment of conception. He says converts, he says their parents at the moment of conception must have had a holy thought. Maybe just for that moment. But they had a holy thought. They were thinking about God, they were thinking genuine love, and it was it was just a holy moment. Therefore, they brought down into this world a soul that has a Jewish spark, the soul of a convert, that will find its way back to Yiddishkeit. He says, vice versa. Of course, a Jew will always remain a Jew. A Jew can never truly convert to any other religion. But how is it even possible for a Jew to even think of going through the motions of converting or pretending that he's converted? Thinking to himself that he genuinely converted. How is it possible? He says, because at the moment of conception, they must have had a parents must have had a very unholy thought. Therefore, like he explains here, the close of the soul is very coarse, and the soul cannot express itself. The soul becomes very hidden and very concealed. So they're not in tune, they're not sensitive to anything spiritual. That explains how they can end up converting, how they can end up denying their Jewishness and embracing what is idolatry for a Jew, another religion. So everything depends on the moment of conception. But up to a point, it's limited. It can only affect this, the, the garment, but not the soul. The soul comes directly from God. We don't even get that from our parents. The soul, we get directly from God, every one of us. And we have a piece of the divine essence inside of us. And that's who we are. That's our definition, self-definition. Everything else flows from it. 
we're successful business people, we have successful careers, we're creative artists, whatever we do, ultimately, everything we have flows from that core, that essence, that we're Jews. That we have the pintle, we have a piece of the divine essence. We're connected. And everything we do is expresses that. Whether we're studying Torah, doing mitzvah, or going about our daily life. Everything that we do, every moment of the day, is an expression of that essence. That's the cornerstone. That's the foundation of our being. And the more you're in touch with that, the more you're able to connect with that, the healthier will be, the healthier the foundation, that everything else will fall into place. What determines what spark each person has? God himself is like I guess so. He says there's no human fingerprints. Nothing that the parents do affect that. And the proof is great parents have mediocre souls and you have worthless parents and they have holy souls. So obviously they had nothing to do with it. This comes directly from Hashem. You know, of course you can pray and we imagine that of course holy people probably most of the time bring down very special souls. Special people probably most of the time bring down special souls. Um... But the fact that sometimes it could be otherwise just proves to you that, that uh, you can have worthless people who can bring down holy souls. It just proves to you that the soul comes directly from God. Ultimately, we don't even get that from our parents. Ultimately, it comes directly from Hashem. When a Jew remembers they have a direct connection to God, and we have literally a piece of God's essence inside of us. That's who I am. That's, that's my self-esteem. I don't have to look for self-esteem. I don't have to acquire self-esteem. It's not because I have money and now I'm happy. Because I'm... I studied and now I'm happy because I've done something and now I'm happy. I have something. It's there. Just get out of the way. Remove your ego. Get your ego out of the way and you'll have a foundation. You'll have something to build your life on. Something to rejoice with. Something solid, eternal, genuine that can never, never be lost. can never be diminished. Ever. No matter what happens. That's the foundation. That's our rock of Gibraltar. That's our identity. That's how we identify ourselves. That's how we define ourselves. We define ourselves as Jews. That's who we are. It, everything that we do is affected by it, flows from that identity, self-identity. It's not that I am a Jew and I am this. Part of me is a Jew and part of me is my career or whatever else I'm doing. This is part of me, an important part. Not part. This is your center. This is your essence. This is your rock of Gibraltar. This is the cornerstone. Everything that you do is colored and is, flows from the fact that you're a Jew. Whether you're an artist, whether you're selling real estate, whether, whatever you may be doing in your life, everything just flows from that reality. And then you have a healthy foundation. So, when do you, how do you separate from the garment? I mean, if the... The soul is pure, but we, we, we go about conducting ourselves not correctly. It's, it's, it's because that garment is still there. Well, we can, we can change. A person is affected by his actions. If a person does a lot of acts of kindness, it will change you. It will refine you. A person who does a lot of mitzvot, it will refine you. Refine your garments person who studies a lot of Torah will refine you. A Jew who sheds a lot of tears, holy tears, it will refine you. 
you sweat by doing a mitzvah, it will refine you. Going to the mikveh, all of these things refine you. Refine the clothes and make it easier for your soul to express itself in a very free way, in a very natural way. So it's not like we're doomed. It's not like we have no choice. But it is a disadvantage. Parents will do anything for their children. We want to give our children every advantage that they have. That's why it's so important to go to the mikveh, even if you don't want to do it for your own sake. Do it for the sake of your children. Give your children a head start. Let them come into the world in holiness and purity. Life is tough as it is. There's so many things that the child will have to deal with in life. Why give them this disadvantage also? Give them this advantage. The soul can come down to this world. It should be conceived. That's why many people, even those who are not yet careful about going to the mikveh every month, but at least before they conceive, they want to go to the mikveh. They, they feel, they understand that this they're doing for their children. The parents will do anything for the children, even more than they'll do for themselves, even if they're not ready to do mikveh for themselves. At least for the children, give them that advantage. They should be born, they should be conceived in holiness. The whole journey should be a smooth journey, an easy journey. When the child comes into the world enveloped by the holiness of mikveh, that, that goes with the child the rest of their life. You give them that extra garment, that extra protection. And uh, that makes it easier. But if, if a person did not have that, it's, it's not like you do. It's not like you have, it makes it more difficult. But anything is possible. And through Torah and through mitzvot and through all of the above, through, we can refine our clothes and refine and, and uh, come closer to Hashem and, and make it easier for Hashem to express itself. So, I, as far as I understand what you're saying, is the, the heritage of the parents to their children is the, sort of the garments of right. the soul. Right. So as the child refines himself or herself, does it mean that the child loses touch with the parent because it's like the child is removing the garments from its soul and therefore the connection to the parent has been lost? No, on the contrary, it's, it's only a merit to the parent. Whatever the child does is a merit to the parent. Even after 120 years, when the parent passes away, the, the, any spiritual advancement on the part of the child is a merit for the parent. Even though the parent does nothing to her? Yes. So the parent also, because, the also is removed from the parent? Because the child and the parent are connected. You know, it's, it, 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 is a core, it is a core connection. It is a soul connection. The parents and the child are really one and the same. Um... So they're, they're, whatever the parent does, whatever, or the child does, both ways, they really benefit each other and help each other. And it's the merit of the child, parent that the parent is such a child, and the child is more advanced than they are. The child is more spiritual and more godly and more, uh, you know, more Jewishly connected than they are. It's a tremendous merit for them. But the parent did nothing to contribute. Doesn't matter. To but they're connected. So any improvement in the parent, child, automatically accrues and benefits and elevates the soul of the parent. That's a good sign. Connected through this, <laughs> the actual spark, then, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's a soul connection. Just to finish a final story, there was a uh, talk about elevation. That the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, he lost his mother when he was very young. And uh, there was a nursemaid 
who still had to help him, and she was she was like, I don't know to nurse him or to help him. Before she passed away, she asked the tzaddik, since she acted like her, his mother, he should do her the favor when she passed away. He should say kaddish after her. She was Jewish. What? She was Jewish. Yeah, of course. Oh, okay. You say kaddish after. Some Sadik agreed. I believe it was after twice. He said Kaddish twice. She appeared to him in a dream and says, Please stop. Your Kaddish is so powerful. You're elevating me to such a world that I can't handle it. <laughs> he, says, he says, Please stop saying Kaddish. Well, this Shabbos was the birthday of the Rebbetzin, Chaim Mushka, the Rebbe's wife. So you can imagine the Rebbe said Kaddish for her 11 months. You know, you're not obligated to. The Rebbe said Kaddish for her. And they had no children. The Rebbe said Kaddish for, for, for 11. They had no biological children. The Rebbe said Kaddish for, for 11 months. Three times a day. Davening three times a day. So can you imagine? But she didn't come to the Rebbe in a dream and ask to stop. So you can imagine what a holy soul she was. That she can handle the Rebbe saying Kaddish three prayers a day for 11 months each time boosting her to another level, another level. Um, but the ch- children, whatever they do, has a tremendous effect and impact on the parents. And they can elevate the parents. Even the parents are not worthy. They can elevate their parents to great heights. Anything they do is a benefit to the parent. And vice versa. God forbid. Parents outlive their children. They can benefit the soul of their children because they're connected. You never sever that connection. That connection only grows deeper. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.